I loved uh, when the girls were sitting in that break room reading those letters. I am on, right? Okay. Sorry. I Sometimes I click this button and I shouldn't. I'm good. All right. So uh, there are letters, uh, some of them funny, some of them not. Some of them were kind of downright painful, actually. Uh, those ones from the adults dealing with kids, family, friends, in-laws, outlaws, right? The, the whole gamut. But it underscores this one reality, and that is this. Christmas can be really messy. Christmas can be really dysfunctional, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So today is the third message in a series called Finding Christmas, and so far Doug has, uh, I'm sorry guys, I don't have the back screen. The Doug has been teaching on uh, finding Christmas in the rush, finding Christmas in the shadow. They're amazing back there. And finding Christmas in dysfunction is what we're going to be talking about today. Next week, Doug will be back with uh, our Christmas Eve services, finding Christmas in the heart. So what we're, uh, again, going to be looking at today is Christmas in the dysfunction. So if you have missed a couple weeks and you haven't been here for any of this series, maybe you came in this morning and you saw this stage and you thought to yourself, okay, Mather's has lost it. He has been close to losing it for years, and now he's finally gone over the edge, the moment we've all been waiting for. Um, but uh, if you're visiting today, we're really glad that you're here. Maybe you came in and you saw this stage, and you had to find someone who looked like they knew something and ask them, this is a church, right? We are, we are in church, but I blame Doug as I do with most things, he wanted it to look like Christmas hurled all over our stage. And so this is what they came up with. And I think that our awesome arts team really nailed it, actually. Uh, looks, looks really great. This stage is a visual representation of the cacophony and chaos and, and uh, dysfunction and mess of Christmas. And so this morning is what we're going to talk about. I'll be using the terms messy and dysfunction interchangeably. Okay, I think that one of the reasons Christmas can be really difficult is that we have an idea of what we want Christmas to be. And then there is the reality of what Christmas actually is, right? Some of us dream of a Christmas that looks like this, don't we? You know, idyllic stone cottage, fires on inside, cold outside, fresh snow. You got your uh, snowman there, you've got the Christmas tree, and that, you know, we know that probably loved ones have been out there joyfully setting those things all up in the afternoon. And last night, it, at this moment in the service, I was looking at this, and I was like, and for some reason, there's a, there's a light post on the other side of the stream where there's no path. But anyways, there's a, somebody, somebody put a wreath on that. But I love this picture, you know, it's like I'd love to step in and, and experience a Christmas Eve or something in that place. But um, if I have one criticism of this, I think the only thing that can make this picture better is me in that stream with a fly rod in my hand. That, that would add to, to the Christmas spirit for me. But So there's that, and then there's the way Christmas actually is. And that looks different for everybody doesn't it? The way Christmas actually is. 
You see, our fantasy of what we want Christmas to be ends up being all bliss and no stress, right? But the reality is Christmas is stressful. It's stressful. A lot of stress comes with Christmas. We are crazy busy leading up to this time of year in our families, right? We are eating more than usual, some of us, and for others, we're attending like way, many more events than we normally would attend, like for school and for church and office parties and all of that, and we're spending much more money than we would normally spend. Listen, traveling is stressful. Hosting is stressful. When you have a house full of people, my family this year, we are just doing Christmas by ourselves, and this is the first one in a long time. We haven't, uh, we've, my oldest son is 11, almost 11, and I think we've only done one Christmas uh, where we haven't had anybody in town, and that brings its own kind of stress. We, in ways, it's going to be kind of nice, but in other ways, we're going to miss having the uh, family around. So what happens here is the physical and the financial, emotional, and time reserves that we all need are greatly de uh, depleted during this Christmas season. And so it makes it difficult. This lack of margin in our lives creates this strain and this stress that inevitably spills over into our relationships, even our relationships with our closest loved ones. Now, all of our families are different. We all know that. Every family, though, seems to have that one crazy and annoying relative, don't we? I can think of, of who that is in my family. Few people, they're all on Marion's side. <laughs> and, uh, but we all seem to have that person, and the, the truth is that that proverbial crazy uncle doesn't have to be an uncle. It could be a cousin or a sibling or a parent or a child, grandparent, grandchild. could be anyone. And there are a lot of personality profiles that we could apply to the Christmas season. People that you plan on spending some time with this Christmas. See if you recognize anybody in this list. First of all, there's doom and gloom, right? The doom and gloom, I'm going to refer to all of these people as guys but we understand that it could be men or women. We understand that, right, men? So uh, to, to this person, there is no such thing as a bright side. And if there is a dark negative side to any issue, this person is going to find it, and they are going to make everybody in the room miserable by talking about it nonstop. You might also be contending this year with the steamroller. The steamroller, this guy, tries to dominate everything and everyone. This guy walks around the whole Christmas time with an air that projects, I will flatten you, right? And uh, maybe some of you have encountered him before. Also, there's the political talking head. Even finding a slide for this was hard. <laughs> so... The, the, this guy is going to steer every conversation towards politics. He's going to bring everything back to politics. He's going to tell you that his way of viewing things is really the only way and that there is no other opinion to be had on any issue. And um, I, I have to tell you that I have gone through a season in my life where I was this person. 
I was like the politics police. I was the political talking head. And um, I would spend months ahead of time watching cable news, listening to political talk radio, just to be prepared for this moment when I would be at the family table and I would get to show all that off. But, uh, but you know, and I have also come out of that now. I don't really watch or, or listen to stuff anymore, but, but uh, I have also been drawn into this trap before by the political talking heads. Some of you are smiling and nodding like, yep, I know what you mean. So uh, there, there's that. And trust me, there is no better way to ruin an otherwise fun, lighthearted, jovial time than to have a room full of people and different opinions. I mean, you know, put 10 people in a room, you're going to have 12 opinions, right? And, it, and to introduce politics into that. Also, there's the holier-than-thou person. You remember her? I'm old enough that I used to watch the church lady live, okay? Uh, but this is the religious zealot who views it as their life's mission to correct all people at all times on all matters pertaining to spirituality and Christian doctrine. There's also the know-it-all. Uh, it's this person's mission to look for something wrong in what you say and then having discovered it to set you on the path of knowledge and by correcting you. This person, this guy walks around all day with an air of you can't all be me, apology accepted, right? And, but that said, when it, this person's insufferable to be around, but, but that said, when it comes time for the family to break up into teams for Trivial Pursuit, we all want this guy on our team, don't we? Uh, and then what my wife and I were calling the game changer. <laughs> when, so, so there's a way that Christmas you, that there's a way in your head that you see Christmas going, but when this guy shows up, it changes the whole day, right? Cousin Eddie. It's just a different holiday. Uh, just his presence, mean, it means that all expectations for the day must be altered, okay? The seating assignments at the table have to be rearranged. You know, more food is going to have to be cooked because the game changer is going to be the first one in line and he's going to take it all, you know, hide the valuables, all that. So every family has this proverbial crazy uncle. And maybe you're sitting out there this morning and you say, our family's not really like that. We don't, we don't really have anybody like that. Well, guess who the crazy uncle in your family is? <laughs> Find a mirror. <laughs> so... But here's the bottom line. This is, what, this is what we're boiling down to here. Christmas is messy. Christmas is dysfunctional. Christmas is messy because people are messy. And this includes you and I. We are messy. We are human. We are all under sin's curse. And we all bring a little bit of our own mess and dysfunction to our holiday table. True across the room. This morning. So relationships are messy, and Christmas is all about relationships. Therefore, Christmas can get really messy. And let's just be honest here. There are people, it's just hard to be around them. That's just the reality. There are people we just don't really enjoy being 
around. Mark Twain said, the more I learn about people, the more I like my dog. Relationships are messy and dysfunctional. We are all dysfunctional people. The difference between your dysfunction and mine is only a matter of degree. That's it. So our question today is this. How can I keep from losing all that I want and hope Christmas to be? How can I keep from losing that in the mess? Or put another way, how can we find Christmas in the dysfunction? You know, we sing a lot about Emmanuel at Christmas. And that's such a great word, Emmanuel. It means God with us. And it's so easy for us to get lost, at least for me, in sometimes in the details of Christmas and the Christmas narrative in the Bible, you know, with uh, angels appearing to people and a decree and, and uh, the, the census and shepherds and donkeys and the manger. But when we zoom out from that, we get a clearer picture of the, the big picture, I should say, of what Christmas is all about. One of my favorite verses that pertains to the, the Christmas season is John 1.14. So the word that is Jesus, God, the word became human. And volumes in church history have been written just about that one little phrase. God became human. And it's really what separates Christianity from all other religions for all time is that one phrase. God became what we are and made his home among us, literally pitched his tent among us, tabernacled among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen, and remember this is John writing, so he's, he's, say, he's including himself in this, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, so Christmas is all about God stepping into our world, our mess, stepping onto our stage. The world in which, into which Jesus was born was messy. The world in which Jesus ministered, healings, miracles, and teaching, it was a messy world. Even his own tight group of 12 hand-picked followers, that was a really dysfunctional group. And we get a great picture of this dysfunction from the record of the final time that Jesus met with his disciples before he died. And we know that time as the Last Supper. The Last Supper. Now, we don't often talk about the Last Supper at Christmas time, do we? It's not really a Christmas story. There's not really a time in the Christmas narrative where Jesus is, you know, sitting down and um, with, with a bunch of people at a table. And if there was, he would have been a baby. So there wouldn't have been much to say. But he is with his disciples now, and we're talking this morning about rising above the dysfunction of Christmas. In this story, we see some great ways that we can do that. So Christmas is kind of our big day on the calendar. For the Last Supper, that was the Passover. That was their big day on their calendar. And sometimes we might be tempted when we're looking at a picture of the Last Supper to say like, huh, what a, what a peaceful time. I'd love to have a peaceful meal like they're having. 
But the truth is that there's a lot of messy stuff going on in that upper room. And there's a lot of dysfunctional men sitting at this table with Jesus. And so since the account of the Last Supper appears in all four Gospels, and none of the accounts are especially brief, we're not going to go through and like read the whole account. You can certainly do that this week. There's tons of great stuff in that story, and we're only going to scratch the surface of it here this morning. Instead, what I want to do is just highlight a couple of things that Jesus did that sets for us an example concerning how we can rise above dysfunctional relationships and hopefully be able to take something and to apply it into our own context this Christmas season. His example in this story is so instructive for us. We can think of these things that Jesus models for us here as gifts. So two gifts, if you will, from Jesus that will make Christmas easier to navigate for us. Two gifts that Jesus brought to the last supper. Two gifts from Jesus. First of all, he showed love. And he was always doing this, but he, he was doing this at this table. And this is so important for us during this time when our margin is so lessened. He showed love. Let me ask you this question. If you knew that this was going to be your last day before, and, and at the end of this day, you were going to be arrested and shortly thereafter killed, how would you spend this final day? How would you want to spend your final evening? I was thinking about that, and, and I think that I would probably want to gather some loved ones around me. You know, I'd, I'd, have, I'd definitely want my sons there. I'd have some things knowing that I probably wouldn't talk to them again. I'd have some things that I'd want to say to them. I'd want to spend some time with my wife and, and maybe thanking some people who had really built into me. The reason I'm asking is because Jesus knew that, this, that those very things were going to happen to him later on that evening. He's keenly aware that in only a few hours... He will be betrayed by someone who was with him for years and somebody who was in that room and at that table. He will be betrayed, arrested, falsely accused and condemned. He will suffer horrific torture at the hands of people he created and he will allow those people he created to put him to death. So what will the Son of God do in these last moments as a free man? What he does is, I think, what most of us would do. He, he arranges for a time where he can be with those people he loves. And so he, he arranges this upper room and he uh, arranges for a dinner to be brought there and that they would eat what we know as the Last Supper. He wants to be with his disciples. He wants to eat with them. He wants to talk with them. There are some things that he wants to say to them that they're going to need to know for what the, the rest of their lives will be about. He wants to serve them. He just wants to be with them because he loves them. You see, 
these disciples have no idea the gravity of this situation. They have no idea the gravity and the weight of these final moments that they have with their teacher, with their Lord and Savior. See, Jesus had recently said to them, there is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And you, he said to his disciples, you are my friends. And so in the upper room that night, Jesus said to them these words. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And so his expressions and upcoming demonstration of love for, meaning the cross, for these 12 dysfunctional men and by extension for all people for all time, he provides for us an example of rising above the, the dysfunction and choosing love over all else. There was dysfunction in that room. I mean, the, the disciples are bickering. They're arguing over petty little stuff. And, you know, Jesus doesn't come right out and address that. He just tells them what it is that they need to know. He loves them so much. So he sets the example of love for us. He also humbled himself. This is so important. This is so important, the humbling of ourselves. To be humble is to esteem others more highly than ourselves. It is to deliberately lower myself in my own estimation so that I am more concerned with others than I am with myself. And Jesus is the ultimate picture of what this looks like, to humble ourselves. So, you know, he humbles himself here at this night. He doesn't come into that room, you know, sit at the place of honor and then say, okay, I've been with you for a few years now. This is the last time. So this is like my going away party. So... If you have anything you want to thank me for, raise your hand, and we will go about this in an orderly fashion. And uh, if you have, if you brought any thank you cards, you can just slide those right over to me right now. I'll take them with me. If you want to recognize me for anything, give me any awards. Now would be the time to do that. No, he doesn't do any of that. He grabs a basin and a towel. He puts some water in that basin, and he goes to each individual disciple, every one of them, and he does something to them that only the lowliest of servants would do. And that is, he washes their feet. He washes their feet. He lowered himself, humbled himself. He lowered himself not only by humbling himself, but physically lowered himself to the lowest place in the room and washed the feet of his disciples, every one of them. And at first, Peter, you know, Peter who was a great example of someone who talks when they should listen, somebody who is a a great example in scripture of the ready, fire, aim approach to life, 
somebody who is a classic example in Scripture of reacting instead of responding. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But Peter says to him, uh-uh, no, no, no. You don't wash my feet. I wash your feet. And then Jesus said to him, Peter, unless I wash you. Now, there's a much deeper meaning in what Jesus is saying right here than just the simple act of washing feet. But he says, he says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Imagine how those words were settling into Peter, Jesus, whom Peter would deny even knowing before the sun would rise the next morning. He's having his feet washed by Jesus. And Jesus also knew that later that night, Judas Iscariot would betray him. So does he, does he gather everyone together and say, yep, that's the guy right there, sick him? No. He sets Judas at his right in the place of honor. He washes the feet of the one who will betray him. That's, a, that's an incredible moment. What grace from the Savior. I can only imagine what was going through Judas's mind at that moment. He knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. In fact, when it came time to do it, he needed Jesus' permission to go through with it. Jesus says, what you must do, do quickly. Gave him the green light to go get the ball rolling on his own arrest. And, you know, Judas later on would come back to the religious leaders uh, so guilt-stricken, come back to the religious leaders with the little bit of money that they gave him for the betrayal. And he would say to them, I've betrayed innocent blood. And then he went out and hanged himself. And there's no way of knowing this, but I wonder. I wonder if while he was fashioning, while he was tying up that rope, getting ready to end his life, if this image went through his mind, knowing he was going to betray an innocent man, and that man performing an act of humble service on him. See, humbling ourselves is something that we must all do if we're to rise above the dysfunction this time of year. And listen, humility is not weakness, okay? Jesus was not weak. That's not why he was killed. We, we think of him as the lamb. He's also the lion, okay? He is not weak. Humility is strength. It takes a strong individual to humble themselves and humbling ourselves is a really powerful thing i got a taste of this foot washing thing once not literally a taste but um i was a youth pastor i was in montana we were on the blackfeet indian reservation and you know it was a it was a long hard hot week and uh towards the end of the week the the young um, you know, people who ran the, the mission there, they told us that us and all the other youth groups who were there that week, that we were going to have a foot washing. And I thought this was so lame. I did not want to do it. I, I thought this is just some gimmicky thing that they're just using to, to fill up time. I thought it was the most cheeseball idea I'd ever heard. And 
could we think of something that we could do as a group that would be time better spent than, than a foot washing? But I'll tell you something. I set my mind to that the teens could probably get something out of this. Okay, everyone else is going to be doing it. I'll, I'll go with it. So I decided that I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to you know, get, get that basin, that towel, and the soapy water, and I'm just going to go around and I'm just going to start washing their feet. And I've never done that before. But I'm going to tell you something that happened. And I can't even articulate it right now, uh, I, it, why this was. But the teens started to, they, when they had first started laughing and stuff, when the foot washing began, they got emotional. And there were some of those students who just collapsed, like, onto my shoulder, sobbing as I scrubbed the dirt out from between their toes. And I can't explain to you why that was such a powerful event, but I'm telling you, if you went to some of them now, I think that there were a few of those students who might tell you that that was the highlight of their four years in our high school youth ministry, was that foot washing. I was completely unprepared for it. I didn't get it. Um, after the last service, somebody came up to me and said, you know, we did this at church once. Pastor sort of out of the box, and, and so he had some people lined up, and they were going to come out and just go around the room, you know, like right where you're sitting, and start washing everybody's feet. So I'd like you to come on out. No, just kidding. <laughs> but they, they did that, and, and she was telling me that it was the same exact thing. You'd go up to somebody, they'd take their shoes, they'd start just washing their feet, you know, and they began crying. And somebody else stopped me in the hall afterwards and said the exact same thing happened to her. She was just doing this on a youth trip, and people just started crying. I'm telling you, I don't think it's about the foot washing itself. It's about the humility. There is something extremely powerful about humbling yourself and emptying yourself so that you allow yourself to be filled with God so that you can show others his love. And that comes when we humble ourselves. So love, humility, what can we do with these things? What are some practical ways we can put these things to use in our own Christmas context? Because it's one thing to see this. It's one thing to read about it on the page. And we contend, and I, I do this, man. I, I read it, and I'm just like, there's a, something like deep down. It's like, yeah, but that's Jesus, though. I mean, like, come on. He's the son of God. It's different. And there are differences. However, Paul did say to the believers in a city called Philippi, he said, I want you to have the same mindset that Jesus had. And then he goes on to talk about that mindset. What is that mindset? Humility. Humility. He, Jesus, and he goes on to say some of the most, the, the most beautiful words about humility in all of Scripture. He says, Jesus, he was equal to God, and yet he did not regard that equality with God something to be held on to tightly. And so he emptied 
himself. Volumes have also been written on that little phrase. Jesus emptied himself and became a man, was born and became a servant and was obedient to the point of death, humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. Can you imagine if everybody showed up at your house this year with that mindset? It'd be a really different holiday, wouldn't it? be like, no, you first. No, really, you first. No, you first. We, we'd be so accommodating, we'd never get anything done, right? So here are a few practical ways we can rise above the dysfunction. First of all, respond. Don't react. I was thinking through my notes for this, and I thought, yeah, this is going to have to be one thing that we, that we walk away with for how to deal with relationships. And, and so we, the pastors, we meet together during the week and talk about the upcoming message, and so it's like a team effort. And the first thing, so, so I said, yeah, I was thinking I'll do three things. First thing Doug Mather said was respond, don't react. Okay, this is a really big one. See, reacting is when we speak before we think. Reacting is vomiting out words before we have an opportunity to temper them or to gauge what impact those words might have and to consider that, maybe change what we're about to say. We need to respond instead of reacting. When we respond, that comes out of a place of love. Listen to Paul's description of love. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. Love is not proud like the know-it-all. Love is not rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. I hate that that's in that verse, but it is, it's there, so we'll read it. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. So, with this description of love in mind, we respond, not react, we respond to the steamroller. We respond to doom and gloom, and we respond to the know-it-all by taking a deep breath and asking, what does love require of me at this moment? It's a great question to ask yourself in that moment. And the deep breath is also very important. Um, if Peter had taken more deep breaths and considered what was about to come out of his mouth, Bible would probably read a little differently, but this deep breath is important. This deep breath is where we, is where God reminds us love is not rude, where he reminds us love is not irritable, and that helps us to formulate a response that is in line with love, it helps us to respond rather than react. Now, this is this is just the way that it is, okay? You and I, I have no control over what other people say and do. I can't control that at all. But I have 
total control over what I say, over what I do. There's a little bit of discomfort in that, but I find a lot of peace in that as well. I really do. I like knowing what I can control and exactly what my responsibility is. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that is being developed in all of us. I don't think we'll ever get to the point in our earthly life where, where we have mastered self-control to the point where there's no work left to do on it, okay? We need God's help to respond instead of react. And this is a journey. It's not the flipping of a switch, okay? So love responds. It doesn't react. Next, we forgive this is a huge one. This is a huge one. And each of these things, by the way, could be their own separate message. We're just kind of surveying each one here. Forgiveness is God's way of putting something to rest forever. Forgiveness is a really difficult thing. Asking someone to forgive us is a really difficult thing as well. When a person wrongs you, it hurts I get it. I have been greatly wronged and offended, and I have felt the sting of that. But when I forgive that person, I am releasing them from that offense, and I am releasing myself from the grudge and resentment that I have had towards that person as I have withheld my forgiveness from them. Forgiveness is release it is release for that other party, and it is release for you. It is a fruit of love in our lives. And I'm going to tell you, if you want to say, you know what, I want to make sure that I don't find Christmas in dysfunction. Here's what you do. You don't forgive, and you don't ask forgiveness. That's all you have to do. That's a guaranteed way to not rise above any of this. Now, I can barely even fathom the depths of the love of Jesus. And even as Jesus, an innocent man, betrayed, in America we have such a strong sense of justice and our rights. And even in that, an innocent man nailed to a couple pieces of wood, he is in intense pain and suffering. And he's not yelling for his lawyer, right? He's looking at those people. And he has compassion on those people who are standing at the foot of the cross, mocking him, casting, you know, rolling dice to see who gets his clothes, spitting on him. And he says, Father, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know who I am. They don't understand. Please forgive them. Paul tells us, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, so also you must do. Forgiveness is an incredibly important thing. And I 
I know that some of you here this morning have experienced pain and offense in a way that I can barely even fathom. But forgiveness is your way out of the pain and of the resentment and of the hurt and of the sting. Forgiveness is our path to freedom. There is no rising above dysfunction in relationships apart from it. Think about this. How can dysfunctional people ever even do anything together without forgiveness? So here's a question for us this Christmas season. Am I withholding forgiveness from someone? Or have I offended someone that I need to go to about that? and seek their forgiveness for something that I did. Now imagine we're at a coffee shop right now, and I'm just like, we're, we're just having some straight talk. I'm going to say this to you. Own it. Settle it. Do it. Because the truth is, you are part of the dysfunction until you do, period. We have to forgive. How much has Christ forgiven us? Everything. So also you and I must do. Lastly, we set wise boundaries. So many other things could be said about this, but we set wise boundaries. You know, we are not obligated to say yes to every invitation. Did you know that? We don't have to do everything. Sometimes saying no is the wisest course of action. Now, I'm not talking about dodging people. Okay, I'm not talking about like running away from difficult people and hiding from them. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there are times when it's just not healthy to be around a certain person or a certain group of people or a certain family. Listen, we govern our children this way. And there are times when it would be wise for us to apply that same wisdom in our own adult contexts. I have a very close friend, very godly man, a very humble man. And he was telling me about his own family. And every year, Inevitably, their time with relatives would just kind of, there'd be like a downward spiral and it would get to the point where it's miserable and uh, why did we come here? Y you know, it's like one of those things like, well, how could we come, but how could we say no? One of those types of situations. And so he and his wife began kind of talking it through and he prayed about it and asked God to, you know, help him maybe set some healthy boundaries for this because they didn't want to dread Christmas for this reason. So they decided a few things. And, and one of the things that they saw before they made their decision was that it's right about at the four-hour mark. It's right about the, some of you might think this message has hit the four-hour mark. But it's right about the four-hour mark where things start to really deteriorate and, and go downhill. So here's what they did. They, they made a couple of decisions. They, first of all, they decided we will not stay at that house anymore. When we go visit, we will stay in a hotel, and we will limit our time with them. 
And so they did that. They got a hotel room, and they went, and then at, at about the three-and-a-half-hour mark, they started kind of getting up, saying their goodbyes, say, hey, really great to see you, and they were out of there before that four-hour mark came. And as he was telling me this, all I could think was like, man, those people, it must be the people pleaser in me. But just thinking, man, they must have been hurt. I mean, they must have been offended by that. You might have really inflicted some pain. Do they, they even invite you anymore? And he said, no, actually, that's not what happened at all. It's crazy. He said, we traded out quantity for quality. And in doing that, the relationship between everybody was strengthened and is healthier now than it ever was because he set wise boundaries. You know, there are, these are just a few practical ways we can rise above the dysfunction. And I want to say this too. Christmas itself is not the problem. I hope nobody's hearing that. Christmas itself is not the issue Christmas is just the time of year when our margin is squeezed and, and all this stuff just kind of comes to the surface. So Jesus gave us the example of, the, the gift of his examples of love and humility. And we need God's help to follow that example. This is not about trying harder. I hope you're not hearing that either. Trying harder is not the answer. We need to, like Jesus did, empty ourselves as best we know how. Because when I am full of myself, my agenda, my advancement, right? My, I, where I want uh, the things just the way that I want it. My wife reminded me this past week that uh, early on in our marriage, when we would go to somebody's house, I would just kind of disappear for a couple minutes and she would cover for me and and tell everyone that I was in the bathroom when what I was actually doing is trying to find where the thermostat was. We like it nice and cool and uh, you know so I especially in the dead of summer in Virginia hot humid you know these people just have the windows open or whatever and so I'd go find the the thermostat and about a half hour later you know guy comes in the kitchen and says, honey, did you set the thermostat on 61? You know, and so that, that might be one of my <laughs> dysfunctions I bring to the table. I haven't done that in at least two years. So, but, so I don't want to, it's not about trying harder. Okay. We need to empty ourselves of that stuff. And we, and what happens is God fills us with himself and teaches us how to respond instead of react, teaches us how to forgive, teaches us to set wise boundaries so that our relationships end up healthier and stronger. So I'm thinking about my Christmas table this year. What does yours look like? What's Christmas going to look like for you and your family? Maybe you're going somewhere, maybe you're having people. Maybe you're like us, and you're just going to kind of be at home with, with just your immediate family. Where would God have us humble ourselves so that we would show his love 
this Christmas. He gave us the gifts of his example, of his incredible grace and love and humility. Jesus said, freely you have received. Freely give. Great words to take in to our Christmas season. I pray that by following Jesus' example, we are able to rise above the dysfunction that accompanies this season. Let's pray. Father, again, I know there's a lot of pain. And in a group this size, I'm sure there's pain that I can't even imagine. Pain from being wronged, hurt, abused. Father, I pray that no one here would think that we are throwing words around like responding instead of reacting and forgiveness. We're not throwing those words around lightly. We get the gravity of what a word like forgiveness means. It brings us to the end of ourselves. It brings us to the place where we will no longer hold that against someone. Mm. Help us, Father. We're needy people. We're dysfunctional messes. And we need your input. We need your guidance. Would you fill us up so that we could humble ourselves as you did and show your love to those with whom we come in contact this Christmas? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.